I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Without them, we couldn't do this weekly, so uh, do us a favor. Uh, if you want to know something about opioids, uh, how to talk to yourself, talk to your family, talk to your doctors, go on over there. They're a wealth of knowledge. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Uh, the first part of the show is where we kind of uh, just check in uh, what's going on in our lives, what's going on in the world of recovery, uh, and normally I bring something to the table but to be honest with you today i don't really have anything do you do i have anything to bring to the table yeah as, as, as what i kind <laughs> of preface I mean, with uh, so one thing that's on my mind is is uh stress of the holidays because mm-hmm. i woke up this morning and normally this doesn't happen to me but i kind of pinged i am not ready for for christmas I haven't done any shopping, haven't done any of those things. Then you start thinking about like money and how much it's going to cost and oh, yeah. all that dad worry stuff. And then as I was driving over here from, from the clinic today, I was thinking, well, you know what? That's a direct impact on people uh, who uh, have a substance abuse problem during the holidays because that stress pops up. And what do you want to do? You want to get rid of that stress. And we go to what's always worked in the past until it didn't work, and that's usually substances, yeah. either alcohol or drugs or maybe both. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because it's cold and snowy today or if it's just the holidays coming up, but I was wondering uh, about your situation. You know, you've got three years under your belt now, mm-hmm. but, but uh, you know, times of year, uh, things like holidays, birthdays, stressful events, sometimes those are triggers. So how's that going? Because I know I don't mean to share your personal stuff yeah. because you never do that. Uh, but uh, how are our finances can be tough at Christmas. And I know you haven't been able to work. I mean, you've been working a lot, but not like before. No, the, I, you know, yeah. I, and people always ask, how was sobriety? And I always tell them the same. Uh, I'm doing better than I deserve. Uh, my life is a hundred times better, but a thousand times harder. Uh, I'm lucky in the fact that I am working and making money and providing for my family and being able to do all these things. Definitely. Uh, but, but it's it, not, well, let's be honest, like it's the income is still not caught up to no. and, and pre, I, you know, sobriety days. I went two years without a job. Right. I was uh, dressed up as an elf last night, uh, DJing a Christmas party. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> this lady comes up to me and she goes, how many jobs do you have? I see you do the podcast. I know you work for Mountain View Title. I know you do a bunch of stuff for Mickey Couture. And then I just saw you at the Weber State basketball game. How many right. jobs do you have? Or do you ever right. sleep? And I go, ma'am, you got to remember, I didn't Fills have a job. Fills up both hands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to remember, I didn't have a job for two years. And so I'm very grateful and lucky that I have these opportunities. You know, you bring up stresses and triggers of the holidays. And so last week, uh, Jordan Burningham, he was our guest from right. Diamond Tree Recovery. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the first year of sobriety being a big milestone. I don't remember exactly what he said the number was, but if you can make that first year, that's huge. And 10%. 10%. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. He's our intrepid producer. Yep. And I think that first year is so important because there's so many firsts that are going to happen in that year that you don't prepare for or you didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. Like the first Christmas, mm-hmm. the first New Year's, your first birthday, and, and things that you always associated with your drug use or your substance abuse in the past. Right. And a lot of times with family and holiday parties, there are a lot of stressors mm. in all those things. And I think that's why alcohol is so prevalent in family parties. I think you bring all the family together, so you bring all the history together, and there's always a mix of good and bad there, right? Yeah, and then there's a lot, hey, we're celebrating, and, and then you forget. There's the that, celebration. Uh, and you know, the, speaking of alcohol, I mean, there are certain drinks that are associated with, like, eggnog. call it, you know, yeah, eggnog. Never liked it, or, but I 
I drank the heck out of it. <laughs> it's horrible. Spoken like a true alcoholic. Yeah. Right? But I mean, that's that's something for people to plan for. And so I guess my thought was, how how are you planning ahead for for dealing with all of that this year? You know, luckily I've and I've said this from day one, including yourself, KSL, Josh, my friends and family. I've had a good team on my side, and, and it takes us back to uh, a guest that we had very on early into the podcast, Lizzie Dankers. And, um, you know, she said that it takes a family, you know, and addiction is a family disease. So if your family is not aware of your disease and not willing to be a part of the solution, then you've got to figure out a way to get around that. And sometimes that's not attending the family party for your own wealth and your own need. And you're just going, hey, look, I'm no, this is not going to be good for my recovery. Yeah. And so you've got to know your How limits. How many people do you talk to whose families aren't supportive? Is that the bigger problem or is the bigger problem maybe feeling shy to tell everyone you have a problem? It's interesting. So I remember one time I was at recovery and I was working for Pinnacle Recovery and I had just gotten a girl in. To the and, program. Into the program. I just want to be careful yeah. about that. Yeah. And, and so her mom drops her stuff off and I'm sitting outside talking to her mom. And she goes, I hope she doesn't think I'm going to stop drinking because I'm not. I don't have a problem. And I went, whoa, <laughs> this is no bueno. This yeah. is no good. you know. Uh, and she was adamant. And, and, and I went and talked to the therapist. And I go, hey, I just want to give you a heads up. This is a conversation I had with her mom. Yeah. She said she's not going to stop drinking because she doesn't have a problem. And she, her daughter needs to figure it out. Right. And he goes, hmm, what do you think about that? And I'm still new out of recovery. And I go, well, to me, it's pretty telling that, you know. She's right. putting her flag down, but chances are if, 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 if you have to tell somebody you don't have a problem, if you have to announce it, yeah, you probably have a problem. You know, and, and, but, but so I think there's some people out there that aren't ready to have that conversation with themselves. Yeah. And those might be the people that you spend less time with or you always have a wingman or something like if you feel like you have to make an appearance at the family party, but you're some somebody in your family's at that level, especially with your mom. Uh, maybe you need to make it a quick one and leave or have have a friend come with you. Do the Irish exit. Yeah, do the Irish like that. You know, yeah. and just go in and bone out. Go, yeah. see you guys. Thank you. Merry yeah. Christmas. Yeah. But, so, but on the other side of that, I think there's family that wants to be supportive. And if it's a drinking family and somebody's got a problem, mm-hmm. they'll go, hey, we're not going to have alcohol at these, at these parties, which I think is, is very nice. Which is what your mom announced. Yes. She didn't really offer she announced it, but you had a different take on that. Because no, because mom, you don't have an alcohol problem. You you, you know you you you're fine. So I don't want you to not have the party that you want because your son's coming. I've got to figure this out for myself. Now early on, I wouldn't go to a party. You know what I mean? If it was, I mean, it wouldn't be an all night. You're real major, new to it. If I yeah. was real new, yeah. but now I'm comfortable. I mean, I. But it started with you guys having that conversation because your mom said, "Okay, we won't have any more alcohol at family parties." And and everyone and I, I think everyone else in your family drinks. Yeah. Uh, except you, for my dad, he quit the da- same day I did. That's true. That yeah. your dad was supportive and decided it wasn't doing anything good in his life, so he quit when you quit. He actually said, "I I I couldn't ask you to do something I didn't know if I could do myself." I think that's so impressive. I I really do. And we so I go sit with them every Sundays. They play this game called cribbage. It's like an old sailor game or something with pegs and cards. Yeah, and, I've heard of it. Yeah. And so I go and sit there and I talk with Old timey movies and yeah, things. And yeah. And I go, so, hey, do you miss it? And he goes, not one bit. Not yeah, one bit. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. and Because yeah. he, he probably used to drink when he played cribbage. Yeah. I would imagine. I have little Baileys in the coffee, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, or a cocktail after golf. But having that conversation with your mom, having that conversation with your dad, I think those are the keys to being able to make time together work, whether some people are drinking and some people aren't. You know, being bold enough, sometimes in a family, it's not an easy thing to bring up. Uh, maybe especially if the rest of your family doesn't drink yeah. or, or you know, that's not a fully acceptable thing. It's sometimes hard to have the courage to bring it up. But I think that's the underlying key to making things like the holidays work for you if you're trying to maintain your sobriety. And I don't know if this is going to play, but it just popped into my head. Um, I think as addicts, we need to own it. We need to own our addiction. And when I say that is that let people know, have got this problem uh, and I'm working on it and mm-hmm. I'm doing it. Uh, but also, this is not all of who I am. 
And, you know, sometimes, right. you know, I mean, I'll go to a party and people go, you're drinking. I go, no, uh, I'm an alcoholic. And the, the, sometimes they look at me and I go, I'm serious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because <laughs> yeah. sometimes they'd be like, not a real like, funny joke. Yeah, anyway, I'm like, yeah. Because yeah. they go, oh, and I go, no, I'm serious. But don't feel free to drink. I'm okay. Right. Uh, because I want you to have fun. Unfortunately, I just don't have an off button and I've got plans for Christmas. So if I, <laughs> I can't drink right I'd now. I'd like to be around. Yeah. yeah. And so, but I own it. And the first part of me when I got into recovery in the podcast was like, I'm going to own it. But now I 100% percent on it last night i was djing as an elf at a party right and these girls were like oh what do you do and i don't know if they sounded like that but in my head they did and sure, I, go, I bet they did uh, well i do a bunch of jobs but i do a podcast oh cool can we be on your podcast and i go i don't think you want to be an alcoholic i don't think you want to be on my podcast yeah. but if you have a problem i'd love for you to come on and share your story and then so these girls were probably 19 to 21 uh-huh. And I told them about the podcast and I told them about I bet my story. They could come on and talk about binge drinking. Probably. That's the age. Probably. Yeah. And I said, you know, but I haven't had a drink in over three years. And we do this podcast to let people know that recovery is possible. And there's a lot of people doing some amazing things in this world. And they and it was crazy because they were taking selfies the whole time. They were all dressed up in all their dresses and they had Jordans on, you know. So it was just like a, and, 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 yeah. and, the, and they go, oh, that's really cool, man. That's and yeah. it was like it was like a real moment, you yeah. know. And then it was like, tee, 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 and then back to the selfies, <laughs> yeah, the right? Selfies, yeah, you yeah. know, in the mirrors and stuff. <laughs> and and so I tried to do this selfie of me in the group so I could post it on my Instagram. Yeah. And the lady goes, uh, "You know, that didn't take a picture. You hit the wrong button." And I was like, "Oh man, I'm 47 <laughs> yeah, wearing an elf man, costume, yeah. and I'm old." Yeah, but it was but it was cool. So I think to go back to that, I think we need to own our addiction. Yeah, uh, sit in it. Because you own it, you have opportunities to talk to people about it, right? Yeah. If you kept that to yourself, you didn't have to bring that up last night, right? No, but I wouldn't feel like I was being authentic because the, the, and you would have missed out on an opportunity to share something about recovery. Well, I left out a part. Okay. So this girl comes up and she goes, "Are you famous?" And I go, <laughs> "No, I'm not famous." And she goes, "Well, a girl at the table says that you were on TV." And I said, "Well, I was once on TV." She goes, what did you do? And I go, I was a reporter. She goes, how come you're not doing it anymore? And I go, because I was an idiot. And uh turns out I'm an alcoholic. And that sucked the fun out of the room right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? And I said, but I do this podcast <laughs> and, and all that other stuff. But, I mean, I, I, if, if I could have just ignored it. But what was her response other, just, other than the, yeah, to- she goes, the tone drop. I think that's cool. I think that's really cool what yeah. you're doing. So what's cool about that is for a young person – to have a conversation like that. Think about, you know, you can be sober from substances. You can also be sober of mind. And to think about, oh, he's famous and he had this big glamorous life. And then to have a real life conversation when you're a young person to realize, oh, that might apply to, who knows if that'll pop back in her head someday. But as a therapist, when I talk to people, it's not uncommon for a person to say, Something that somebody said to me once came back to me at a really important time and helped me make good decisions. And so it's important for a young person to realize, even if you have the dream job you wanted to have, even if you know you wanted to be on TV and do these things, it can all go away Oh yeah, real fast uh-huh. because of poor decisions or addictions, uh, the disease that you have if, you don't, if you're not aware of it, if you don't manage yourself uh, and pay attention to your uh, predispositions and those sorts of things, it can all go away. And that's a pretty good message for a young person, whether it's drugs and alcohol or other behaviors, that's, that's a good message for them to, to tuck away somewhere for the future. And I hope the other side of that message is because of this podcast, we let people know that recovery is possible. And just because you slept on the streets or some of the things you thought you'd never do, you were doing Life is not over. It does get better, and recovery is possible. And there's many ways up Sober Mountain. Like, we're going to talk to our guest today, Jim Morgan, uh, who's been sober 12 years. Jim, how old are you, man? I'm 65. So we're going to hear his story coming up next. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today, I think, has the distinguishment uh, uh, of being the oldest member. He's 65. Of the show. Of oldest the show. member of the show, probably, yeah. And he's got 12 years of sobriety. Uh, his name is Jim Morgan. Jim, where does the story of Jim begin? So it begins in Carmichael, California, 1956. That's <laughs> where and when I was born. Um, I have five uh, brothers and sisters. I'm the youngest of six kids. You're the baby. Yeah, my my parents were uh, later on in years when they had me, um, 42 and 47. So I was the baby of the family. That, that is pretty. That, that's getting up there, especially back in those back days. in those yeah. days. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. So do you, were were you a planned uh, pregnancy? Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I've never. I never ask him that question when did I have the, the older, chance. Did the older siblings tease you about not being planned? That's probably the most important. Yeah, I've question. been teased about. Yeah, that. yeah I was going to say that's because you're the youngest. You always they're, get they're all. They're all that. jealous because I was a favorite. I there hear that go. a lot. You were yeah. spoiled. Well, yeah, a little bit. I, I kind of think that um, by the time they got to me, my oldest brother is 24 years older than me. That they were just kind of. They're worn out. Done. Yeah, like, yeah. The I, youngest kid kind of runs amok typically. Yeah, in big sometimes families. I think yeah. uh, I ask myself, who was keeping an eye on me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nobody. It, yeah, I think it was kind of. So before we get into your story, does any of your brothers or sisters have substance abuse problems? Yes, um, one of my older brothers he passed away a few years ago uh, from cirrhosis and cancer of the liver, uh-huh. and I have a sister that's. Um, been in recovery. She's kind of in and out of recovery. Uh, I think she's doing pretty well right now. She's a couple years older than me. And we see that, you know, runs in families often. Do, do you know anything about previous generations of your family? Um, I don't know a lot uh, on my dad's side. Uh, on Did my they keep records way back then? Pardon? Did yeah. They-, <laughs> <laughs> they, they got burned in the Civil War. So, um, and my mom's uh, family are pioneer stock and so there's probably alcoholism there but you wouldn't know because they never took a drink oh, the the mormon so, pioneers yeah. right yep. so not a lot on that side and because i'm so late in the generations um you know i didn't know those people they were yeah. all all my yeah. grandparents passed away before long before i was ever born so I'm not real familiar with uh, yeah. well, the family some, medical history. It's hard to know uh, more than a generation or two beyond. But, you know, it's interesting how addictions, you know, at least the predisposition can run in families. So. Jim, do you remember the first time you tried alcohol? Yeah, very vividly. Um, you know, I grew up in California until I was about 10 years old and, and it was getting a little uh, – big down there. So my parents thought, we're going to move to Utah, be a better environment for the kids and stuff. But uh, when I left California, um had no interest in girls. The biggest thing in my life is it was going to be my first year in Little League Baseball. I moved here and they're smoking cigarettes and making out. And, and uh, That's pretty young for making out. I thought so. Well, of course, uh, it was Ogden you moved to, right? Pardon? Was it Ogden you moved to? Yeah, it's Ogden. Yeah, so yeah, all bets are off in O-Town. Whoa! <laughs> that neighborhood was just a little weird microcosm. Most of us that grew up there that are still alive are in recovery. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And and so uh, somebody would swipe a beer and everybody would pass around and take some drinks. But I, ne- I, I hated the taste of it and I, I wouldn't even swallow it. I just pretend like I was participating. And then uh, the first time I ever 
actually drank alcohol to get the effect of it. Um, I was 12 years old. I just started junior high school. And I went to a, a house party at a friend's house. And it was it was different than any of the parties I've been to before. There no blindfolds spinning you around, none of that. There was boys and there was girls there. And, and they were playing music and they were dancing. And then some of them would be off in the corners. Making out. Making out, yeah. And um, the making out part looked really good to me. <laughs> the dancing part, not so much. Um, I was I'm, never I'm, a dancer. I'm with you on that. I'm not a dancer. This, I, I this guy can not. dance, though, In right fact, here. I love to dance. I'll tell you guys right now, if you ever see me dancing, get me into detox immediately. <laughs> something's, something's going on. Jim's dancing. He's back drinking. Uh, yeah. It's a red flag. Sign. Yeah. But so, let me ask you this. Did, you, did drinking kind of take away your fears of dancing? Ab- absolutely. Um, it, because it looked like you had to dance first before you could make out. Okay. And uh, but I was just too terrified of that. And then uh, the, the friend that lived there, uh, Jimmy, the lock on his dad's liquor cabinet, brought a bottle of scotch out, and some guys started passing that around. And I noticed these girls really gave that a lot of attention, like they thought that was really cool. And I knew how alcohol tasted, but if it was that taste or dance, I'll I'll drink. And I did, and it was the first time I ever got enough of it in me to have that effect that I had. And uh, I loved it. I wasn't afraid to dance anymore. Everything, I mean, it was like, this is the greatest night of my life. Um, you know, it's it, it, we have heard that multiple times yeah, on the yeah, podcast, yeah. where they, it was either the first pill, the first drink. They said, this is the greatest night of my life. It was a changer, game changer. For a minute. <laughs> It's uh, it's amazing what we'll do to to get the girls. Oh yeah, it's basically what you're telling me is I, I didn't really like the taste of alcohol. I definitely don't want to dance, but if I do those things, I might get a girl. <laughs> so it was end up in a corner. Yeah, yeah. My entire dating career was modeled off that night. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of happened. Were you a shy kid? Like like did you feel kind of shy and awkward? Yes. And so that makes talking to girls almost impossible, right? Especially when you're that age. Absolutely. Um, like I said, my my entire dating life, I, I was a person that I would be in a dance club because that's where everybody hangs out and that's where all the girls are, but terrified to ask anybody to dance, not only because I'm a terrible dancer, but that re- possible rejection. If, if somebody were to yep. say no, that you know, I'm going to have to kill myself now. You know, feel very, very yeah, embarrassed and too, awkward. Too risky. Yeah. Um, horrible fear of rejection. So you said you modeled your whole dating career after that recipe, alcohol, dance, girls. Yes. That was ba- that's the only way I'd get up enough nerve to talk to somebody I didn't know. And so after your first experience at the age of 12, um, was alcohol pretty common in your life then? It was fairly frequent. Uh, you know, when you're in junior high school, you don't have a big budget to work with. So I didn't drink that <laughs> often. But uh, pretty much whenever I could, I did with kind of the same results. I always overshoot the mark. Yeah. They outshoot, overshoot your coverage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because at that point, you're just a bumbling idiot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I speak from experience. I know. Yeah. It's, and so, after junior high, you move into high school. Did did you always feel like you were out of control and overshooting your mark, or did, did you kind of tame it away, tame it in? Um, I cut back on it a lot. Um, I like to play sports, and when I, I was playing sports, I didn't do that stuff. I, I've always kind of been the proverbial chameleon, and I'll try to fit in with whoever I'm hanging out with. So when I was playing sports, that's not what those people were doing, you know, so I wouldn't drink very often. But when I drank, I just never uh, seemed to be able to control it. You yeah, know, didn't like, have an off switch. I'm, I'm just going to get that nice little buzz on and things are going to be fun and, and I'll have some rhythm and I can dance. Everything's going to be good. Isn't that crazy how many times, because I know so many times when I'd go out drinking, I would have that same kind of inner dialogue with myself. It's like, hey, we're not going to drink too much. We're just going to have a couple. Everything's going to be good. But more nine times out of ten, it didn't end that way. I mean, I overshot my mark most I, of the nights, I, too. I never once uh, 
intended. It was never my plan once to end up in handcuffs in jail or thrown up on myself or all the crazy stuff that would happen when I would drink. Never once was that the plan. But And every time I'd tell myself, okay, we're going to stick to the plan this time. Everything's going to be great. I'll bet you there are plenty of people listening that are feeling – uh, self-conscious right now because they have that same dialogue as well. And I think that's extremely common where you say to yourself, oh, I'm just going to have a little buzz, enjoy myself, I'm not going to let it go too far tonight. And then you just can't stop. There's no off switch, like you said. And if you're listening to the show, that might be, and you're not in, you know, working with somebody to get some help and you're having that same internal dialogue with the same results, that's a pretty good indication that you you need some help. So during high school, you had a pretty normal high school experience? Yeah, I loved high school. It was great. I never wanted to graduate. I knew people would expect me to do grown-up things when I graduated from high school. And uh, and I we have two Ogden High Tigers right That's here, right. right? Yeah. Ogden High Tigers. Go Tigers. Right? Yeah. Was, was your football team sucky too? Because mine was. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> to be honest, we'd have to get better to suck. <laughs> basketball was the sport when I was there. Yeah, basketball was great with us as well. So uh, after high school, uh, you said you didn't want to graduate because you thought the world was going to expect more of you. Uh, what did the world expect from you after high school? Uh, either go to college and or get a job. And so I went that route for a while. Um, but like I said, I like to drink. And it always seemed to uh, get in the way of my going to school. And I didn't like being broke. And so uh, I would take breaks. I made like three attempts at uh, Weber State over the years. But, you know, it's hard, it's hard to show up and perform when, when you haven't slept in a couple of days and you're hungover and severely. Then, and you have to work and, and try to just keep all those balls juggling in the air. Yeah, I – I, I kept at that off and on and until like um, 1985. And, you know, I started out with alcohol because back in that day, that was okay. It was kind of cool. Um, it was accepted. Um, drugs weren't part of my story at all until, until I was much older. And um, eventually they became part of my story. And then manageability just got off the charts. And so... Um, I moved to Nevada in 1985, um, thinking that getting away from here would be the answer to that and law enforcement. It, uh, I'd worn out my welcome with the law enforcement around. So in, in your in your attic brain, you go, I'm going to move to the place where they never stop and they party 24-7. Yeah, when I look back, it's like, <laughs> you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. I've had those ideas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking back, it was like... <laughs> Probably not a good plan, <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't. And so you moved to – where did you move to in Nevada? Just Wendover. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I could come over here on my days off, you know, and then limp home. Okay. And so how long did you spend in Wendover, Nevada? Well, I went out to work for the summer in 85, and uh, I finally came back in 2006. So mm-hmm. it was my summer job that lasted 20, 21 years, off and on. I was fired a couple of times for Poor work performance. Uh, at any point, did you fall in love, have a family, get married, any of that stuff? Funny you should ask. <laughs> yes. Um, I got married when I was 36 years old. But um, I, I stopped doing drugs in, in 85 when I moved to Wendover and thought, I'm just going to drink and I'll be okay. And I wasn't. Uh, and I picked up a DUI and some other stuff. And then I can't even tell tell you why, but... Along about 1991, I decided I'd uh, give some drugs a try again. Now, what kind of drugs are we talking? We're talking about cocaine. I liked cocaine. That was your I deal? I liked to go fast. Uh, I could drink more when I would do it. And, and back then, you know, late 70s, early 80s, it was, it, it was kind of chic almost. You know, if, if you were hanging out and you weren't doing that stuff, you weren't – you know, you weren't one of the cool people. It was kind of a status. I mean, it was. It, yeah. It was. So, and I got out of that because it was, it was causing me so many problems. Started messing around with it again, uh, early 90s. And, and I met 
my future first ex-wife. And uh, we were, you know, we were birds of a feather. And it, it so got, she partied like you partied. Oh yeah, she she could stay with me no problem. And uh, it just it was a bad match, and it, it ended up with <clears throat> some some serious legal problems. And and um, we got married, <laughs> and uh, she got pregnant with my youngest daughter, and we were married for about five years. It wasn't a very healthy marriage. But I managed to stay sober for the most part over that time. I only drank a couple of times. Um, I was really uh, busy with work and this marriage and raising my youngest daughter and stuff. And uh, was sober for a while. And then the marriage fell apart and I immediately went back to what I knew, you know. Can I ask you something? When you said you were sober for the most part, uh, recalling those years – do you feel like they were good years? I mean, did, did 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 you enjoy your life at that time, or did you feel like you were missing out on something? No, I didn't. I enjoyed it. Uh, I really got – I had a very challenging job at the time, and I loved that. Um, looking back, it's kind of like, though, I kind of just switched one addiction for another, and that was what caused problems. some of the problems in the marriage is I'm working 16 hours a day, and when I'm not there – I'm, I'm, I have a pager on all the time. You know, I'm on call all the time. And that's what I focused on. And I dove into that. And uh, That's a common occurrence, you know, addiction switching and going from one addictive behavior to another. And it's uh, especially when you're a young, younger person and you have a family to take care of. It's hard to argue that that's a bad thing in those moments because you're like, well, look, I'm. You know, I have an important job. I'm working hard. I'm earning money for my family. But the reality is the job was probably running you a little bit more than you were running the job if it, you know, if it is a switch in addiction, just like an addiction runs our lives more than we are in control. I think it distracted me from the drug and alcohol addiction. I, I, when I look at it, I think of it as I'm trying to outrun my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like the slasher movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you run and you run and you turn around and it's still coming at that steady pace, you know, and eventually you trip and fall down and, and it's got you. So Absolutely. that was always my uh, answer to the problem was to try to outrun or distract harder. myself yeah. with something else. Well, we'll see how long he was distracted. Stick around. You're listening to Project Recovery and listening to Jim Morgan right here on KSL. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Jim Morgan. Uh, he was talking about his early uh, career in partying. Uh, he'd been married, moved to Wendover, Nevada. That was your first recovery program, right? <laughs> Moving yeah. to Wendover. Yes. <laughs> 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 That's pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, And I don't want to be a, a, a nosy neighbor or a, a bad host, but I want to ask you a little bit about your legal problems. Uh, because you kind of got a little tense when you were talking about them. Is that a kind of a sore subject for you? No, no not really. Um, it was for a long time, but it's not today. It's, you know, it's stuff that I did. It, it's not who I am today. You know, it's, I, I don't, um, I'm not uncomfortable sharing that if I think it can help somebody. Um, I, I had a lot of, you know, uh, legal issues over the years, you know, DUIs, um, Barroom type stuff, you know, just fights, stu- stupid stuff. Yeah, well, it sounds I, like you're pretty well known in Ogden uh, with the legal community. Yeah, <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> so um, tell tell us a little bit about that. You know, those legal experiences. Um, I I was subpoenaed into the grand jury in Weber County three times. Uh, they're investigating uh, drugs, drug sales, that kind of stuff. Um, Everybody was given immunity, so when it was all over, nobody went to jail. And that's the reason I thought, I'm going to move to Wendover and let these guys forget about me for a while mm-hmm. and make some money and everything would be great. And um, But I started back in the early 90s, like I said, and I got involved with cocaine again. And this girl's in my life, and she's a part of that as well. And uh, it's making – 
me so unmanageable. I can't show up and 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 perform at work anymore. So my boss sat me down and he said, um, "You got a couple options here. I can't cover for you anymore. You can either resign, and when you can get it together, if you can get it together." come back and I'd be happy to have you back or I can fire you and you will never come back. So I resigned, uh, withdrew my 401k early, moved back to Ogden and decided um, that I was just going to sell drugs. Mm, Another one of Jim's plans. Right. (laughs) But you're probably feeling kind of desperate at that point. Again, it seemed like a plan at the time. Yeah, yeah I, I did, and and I I couldn't I couldn't see past um, the end of my straw, you know, and so um, it's not working out very well. And no matter how hard I try, my four hundred one k is dwindling quickly. And so I decided I was going to um, take a road trip to, to California, and I knew some people in California, and uh, I was going to make this big deal, and I was going to come back here and every, live happily ever after. And uh, along the way, um, there was an incident in uh, South Lake Tahoe, California. It kind of started out as a road rage thing. And uh, I'd, I'd been up like seven and a half days. And I wasn't in, wow. in a very good state of mind. I was in a really bad mood. And this road rage thing just kind of exploded. And... Uh, the California Highway Patrol happened to be coming along, and they got involved in it. And when they searched the car, they found a lot of things in the car that you would not want to claim ownership of, um, drugs, firearms, that kind of stuff. And so I was in some very serious trouble. I was looking like 10 years in, in the California state prison. <clears throat> and um, one of the people that I was arrested with made some comments to the police that were upsetting to me, and so I wanted to talk to him about that. And we were booked into the jail, and we were in separate areas of the jail. And the only somebody told me, there's a 12-step meeting in here tonight. If you send message to the other pod and have him come to that meeting, then you can talk to him. And so I did, but he never showed up at that meeting. But all I remembered about that meeting is I heard people talking about God in that meeting. And so my mind just snapped closed because I had given up on anything like that uh, a long time before that. What year was this? This was 1993, 16 years before I got – before my second 12-step meeting. Um, so anyway, I, I got off with like 100 and some days in jail. They released me and I went and celebrated for like a month. Then I, I went back to work, and for the next five years, I was basically sober. I only drank a couple of times. But both times I drank, I again, I overshot the mark. Uh, and then uh, um, when I got divorced, um, I immediately w- went back to alcohol and then very quickly back um, to cocaine. And they weren't working out for me very well. I needed something that could make me feel the way I wanted to feel and still show up and not have everybody know that I'm messed up. And so I thought, you know, I have friends that take painkillers and and they seem pretty chill. So I thought I'd try some painkillers. And a friend told me about them. So how old were you when you tried painkillers for the first time? The first time that I tried them that I liked them, um, I was... Forty-five. Hmm. And when you took them, did it kind of uh, suppress the appetite for the cocaine and the alcohol? Did you felt like it was taking its place and doing what you intended it for at first? It did. When I did those, I had no interest in drinking, or I, I didn't want to do anything that interfered with that feeling. So it was pretty much just that, that, and, and some other prescription medications, benzodiazepines, muscle relaxers. But but it allowed you to to do your job and and kind of show up and to a point, and and until it didn't, um, I could never get enough of them. I I went to a pain management doctor and lied to him to get him to prescribe them to me, and um, he prescribed me a, a huge amount of them. But it was still never enough. I'd be out of them in a week, 
And so I knew people, and they'd say, well, I know something that will keep you from being sick. And it was heroin. And um, Trying to keep up that pill habit is one of the most expensive Right. Uh, Like if you're buying them off the street and not getting a prescription. And the 90s, you know, that was really the the height of of the opioid, you know, like the the prescriptions were – there wasn't so much oversight on prescriptions. It was the wild, wild west. It was. It was the wild, wild west for for, uh, prescription drugs for sure. And we're still trying to recover, I think, culturally from from what happened in that time period. Uh, But like you said, even that, even a large quantity, a big prescription – wasn't enough. And then if you go to the streets, they're very, very expensive. So one of the most common things, of course, we see it on the show a lot. And I've I actually was talking to uh, a lady, uh, a mom uh, in the clinic this morning who was talking about her brother who uh, has basically lost it all uh, because he is now on hair. You know, heroin is his addiction of choice, but he was a person that came to it through through pills. And so sounds like your friend suggested, hey, will keep you from getting sick on the withdrawal from your pills by switching you to heroin. And heroin has a particular reputation. So at this point in your life, you'd heard about heroin and what people who took heroin were like. Were you hesitant to try the heroin at all? A little bit. But... Because I think more than other drugs, like you said, you know, cocaine had sort of this like chic kind of uh, status symbol, especially, you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, alcohol is alcohol and think about it. But heroin is kind of associated with the, the real strung out druggies, the people that you don't want to be like. Um, and I, I've talked to a lot of people who the idea of doing heroin is kind of like, oh, I don't know, but they're so desperate. Absolutely. Uh, it was a line that I told myself I would never cross. Um crossed every line I ever put down there. Um, it, w- it was just a nightmare. It was a nightmare. By by 2000, um, it got me fired from my job, and I just closed on a new house, and, and I had all these expenses, and I, I'm spending $700 a week on, on heroin, and it's, okay, something's got to go. So I went and checked into a detox and spent three days in there, what year Sicker was this? I've ever been in my life. Left there, stopped at the liquor store, and got some vodka to help me detox from from the, the opiates, and that was in two thousand. Wow! And so, I mean, what was interesting is that you said that uh, you crossed every line that you ever laid down. Absolutely. Uh, in the beginning, it was I'm I'm not I'm never going to do drugs, and then it's I'm never going to do that drug. And then it's, well, I'm never going to do that drug that way. And you're in a hotel room with a needle in your arm going, what happened? How did I get here? You know, um, once I started crossing lines, uh, the rest of them just kind of faded away. away. And can, I, can I, I mean, this may be, I don't know, a strange question, but when a person does that, and of course, you know, addictions do exactly what you're describing to most people, you you set a line or a limit for yourself and then you cross it. Did that change how you felt about yourself as a person? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and it just fueled the need for the drugs. Yeah, because, you, you know, we set standards for ourselves. Everybody does, whether we formally do it or informally. And when we don't live up to those standards, it's a self-esteem hit. It really tears you down a bit. And to... To like you said, to get to a point where you end up in a hotel room with a needle in your arm, uh, that must have also been a real low point for how you felt about yourself as a person. Absolutely, and I so relate to that because, uh, you know, earlier you know we're talking about being twelve years old and shy. What that really is is self esteem. Yeah, and I've always had problems with self esteem. Always so, uh, being divorced, having your wife leave you. Um, That's throwing, a self-esteem hit. Right, kids probably, in the probably the worst single self-esteem hit I've ever had, and uh, exactly that that shame and that guilt about what I'm doing, and and I'm trying to hide it from everybody because I don't want anybody to know because what would they think of me? And it just makes it worse. And and 
those secrets just keeping me. It's interesting how we get older, (laughs) but some of those internal struggles that we've had since we were kids remain. Yeah. And I think that's another reason in just like, I think I agree with what Casey said earlier, in order to get over your addiction, you need to own it. You need to talk about it. You need to, to be outspoken about it. The same goes for other mental health issues, our anxieties, our depressions, uh, feelings of you know low self-worth, uh, fears. If we don't talk about those things, we hold them inside because we don't, you know, we're, we're especially guys, you know, we don't want to tell anybody I feel afraid. Or I feel scared or, you Anxious. know, every, everybody else can dance. I remember feeling the same way you, you, when you're describing dancing in junior high. I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that, you know, because I don't know how to do that. You know, like, you know, because I was too self-conscious to and I probably went out and did it anyway for the same reason. You know, I'd w- hoping a girl would dance with me. That was enough to make me do it. But that didn't change the feeling of self-consciousness inside. Right. And it, it's interesting how these things all, you know, if you don't resolve it. It doesn't go away. You know, those self-esteem issues don't magically resolve themselves. And in fact, like you're saying, Jim, they get worse over time the more we uh, fall short of the marks that we set for ourselves. In the recovery world, they say secrets keep us sick. Yeah. And so you've got to get them out there. you got to talk to them, whether it's a priest, a clergyman, uh, a therapist, a support group, a 12-step, whatever it is. You need to get them out and talk about them because if you internalize them. Well, that's always them, the first step yeah. in change. Yep. Like if you keep it inside, you're never going to change. So you got a $700 uh, a week heroin habit. You've just lost your job. Uh, things aren't looking too good for Jim. No, no. Um, I uh, played poker for like the next six months, try to make my house payment and stuff down in Las Vegas. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't using uh, – opiates uh but at night when i was done playing i would go buy alcohol and pound it down so i could sleep because i still didn't feel right and then i was able to get a job back dealing poker again and so i went back and and i was doing that for a while um trying to stay away from the drugs and alcohol and I can't tell tell you exactly when or why, but it was about 2003. A friend of mine said she had a prescription for some uh, lower tabs that she didn't want. Did I know anybody that might want to buy them? (laughs) And I had some money in my pocket, and I said, I'll buy them. And without even really thinking about the the danger in that, I started with 60 lower tabs, and... That was it until 2009. The next six years, uh, I basically didn't draw a clean, sober breath the next six years. So was it a a combination of pills, heroin, or did you end up going straight back to heroin? Um, Pills. But again, uh, that was my preference. I liked Oxycontin, uh, but I couldn't stay supplied with it enough. So I would go through my prescriptions – uh, I would get heroin, Suboxone, methadone off the street, whatever I could get to try not to be sick until I could do that again. Or I, whatever I could afford, I would buy an Oxycontin off the street. So you said 2009 is when it ended. Uh, we're going to find out how it ended coming up in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Jim Morgan. 2009 comes. What happens? Well, in 2006, I'd lost my job again, and I decided to move back to Ogden. I was I was done with Nevada, and uh, I'm still using on a daily basis. And I've just gotten to this point where, you know, some people call it rock bottom. I, I call it the jumping off place. This is a place where I can't live like this anymore, and I can't stop. And so the only way I can see out of this is death. And and I'd felt that way a lot of times over the years, and the idea of being dead wasn't objectionable to me, but, but the actual act of getting there uh, was. And I got to the point where I decided that's the only option I have left because I'm not going to live like this anymore. And so um, – I was living in a friend's basement, and she worked at the IRS, and it was a Saturday. It was July 11, 2009, 
and I knew on Monday morning she was going to leave like she always does to go to work, and I would have the garage to myself all day. And so I spent that afternoon clearing boxes out of the way so I could pull my car in all the way. Uh, My plan was I'm going to take a bunch of Xanax, chug as much vodka as I can. I'm going to go sit in the car, and when my head starts going over, I'm going to hit the garage door opener and close the door and be done with this. And um, I'm laying on my bed that night, and I'm thinking about this, and I keep thinking about my kids. And um, I ask myself, is this the last thing you're ever going to do? And uh, I didn't want to do it, but I didn't know what else to do. Uh, I caught my Johnny Cash moment. <laughs> I'd seen a biography on Johnny Cash, and he was he, he was like me. And when he got to that point, he wasn't really a religious person like I wasn't. And uh, But he asked God for some help, whatever God is. And uh, that was a turning point for him. And I thought, you know what, as improbable as that sounds, I'm out of ideas here. And I just um, – I said a prayer, uh, not knowing if any, anything hears prayers or if there's any point in this. But at this point – What do you got to lose? to lose? Exactly. And I did that and I fell asleep and I woke up the next morning. You know, it wasn't like the room lit up or anything like that. I didn't even associate it for a long time. But the next morning I woke up and for the first time in, in – Years, I I had a little bit of the will to do battle maybe one more time and try to beat this. And I called up my ex-wife, and her and my youngest daughter came over and got me. And and she and I told her, I'm going to get clean. And she says, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to get a suboxone doctor. And, and I could just see the look on her face. It was like, you mean the same thing you've tried so many times? And she said, why don't you let me call this treatment center. And I'd heard of this treatment center, and I hadn't heard a lot of good things about it. And the only reason I agreed to it was because I couldn't look them in the face and say no. And so she called them and set me up an interview for the next day. And it was at Ogden Regional Hospital. And I went in for the interview, and I didn't want to get honest with the guy, act like I, I, I didn't be honest about the problem I had until he said, well, I don't, I'm not really sure why you're here. And I knew I have to get honest. And for the first time, I did with somebody else. And so they had a bed for me in detox. And I went into detox. And I was in there for three days. And I really hadn't yet decided that I was willing to commit to a 28-day inpatient. 28 days seemed a little excessive to me. <laughs> and, but I just – I knew in my heart if I didn't, if I didn't take this serious – and I didn't do what they were telling me to do. I was going to die. And and so I agreed to do that. I didn't know it was going to be based on 12-step or I would have never gone because of that experience I'd had 16 years earlier. In the California State Prison. Yeah, in the jail there, you know, in that 12-step meeting. But I got in there and, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I decided I need to be open-minded on things. You know, and people are telling me, well, just try this and see what happens. And I did. And I started to see that it was benefiting me. It was helping me. And and so I stuck with that. And I did the 28 days, and, and I committed to doing two years of an aftercare program once a week for two years. And they told me, you should do this. You should go to meetings. Um, you should get a sponsor to help you, that kind of stuff. So I did all that stuff. About six months over, um, I got clear to go in the Weber County Jail, and I started taking meetings in there and hospitals and institutions. And I went to every meeting on the schedule I could find, and I would go to like 15 meetings a week. And, I, you know, and it worked really good for me. I'm not saying that it will work good for everybody, but it did for me. One of the great things is I got to meet all these amazing people in recovery that I would have never known if I hadn't shown up there. I don't know if you're like me, but for the first time when I went to a 12-step meeting, I was finally in a room of people who were just like me. And I didn't feel so alone in my addiction. I always thought I was broken. I thought, what's wrong with me? All these other people seem to be able to do it just fine and doesn't let it wreck their lives, their marriage, their job, all these other things. 
uh, and I'm broken. But I was in there and I was like, wow, there's a bunch of people just like me that don't have this figured out. In the beginning, I didn't think I was like them. <laughs> yeah. I, I went into <clears throat> the first one was in that treatment center and there's probably 80 or 100 people in that meeting. And I sat with my head down trying to hide because I didn't want anybody in there to think I had a problem. <laughs> well, I think that's a mental shift. You, you, In the beginning, before you're ready to change, that is the attitude. You're like, well, I don't belong here with these people. I, I'm not like them. I, I don't have this problem. And then later, once you've made the shift and you're ready owned to it. change, you're owned it, you, you need to be honest, you realize, I am just like these people. And that's a that's a supportive environment. It's not. It's no longer a, a negative. But my ego uh, continually tries to tell me I'm different than other people. Yeah. Tries to separate me from people. That's the I walk in brain. to meet my treatment group, and I immediately looked at them all and decided I don't belong here with these losers. Well, Freud would agree with you. That's what the ego tells us. We're better right. than these other people. Yeah. Right. Yep. But I knew I needed to stay. And so you're hitting 15 go. minutes, of, 15 meetings a week for yeah. a long time. Yeah, I did. And I got involved with, um, like I said, taking meetings in and some service positions and, and uh, some commitments at some treatment centers. And um, So you're starting to give back, not just attend the meetings, but right, do other because, things. because, you know, the, the meetings worked just fine for me for several months. And then all of a sudden they weren't working so much. They were kind of working against me. And um, – Thankfully for me, a friend of mine who's been in recovery a long time told me, well, you know, maybe you need to start giving something back. And so I did. And so um, what you have found, and we talk about it on the podcast all the time, the opposite of addiction is not abstinence. The absence of, opposite of addiction is connection. And it found some people to connect with. Absolutely. Um, you know, I like to uh, – at, at my age, there's not a lot of physical activities I engage in anymore, but <laughs> – um, I love to play golf. Um, I like to hike. Most of the people that I associate with today are in recovery. Uh, not because I, I'm afraid to hang out with people that aren't. It's just uh, we have so much in common. You know, the, I, the coolest people I've ever known in my life are the people I've met in recovery. I mean, I just cherish those relationships, you know. I, I'm finally at a point in my life where I realize what's of true value and it's not the stuff, it's the people in my life today. You know, when I left that treatment center, my 14-year-old daughter had made me commit to taking all the numbers out of my phone that were a part of my addiction. And we mm. did that the first day I left there. And it was a lonely feeling because there wasn't hardly anybody in that phone anymore. I got wow. like 500 contacts today. Probably 85% of them are people that are in uh, recovery one way or another. So at 65 years old, what does recovery look like for you today? <laughs> so I, I work out um, – you can edit this out. I guess. No, I'm no, no. plug in. No plug I work at Action Recovery Group. Um, I've worked there almost eight years now. It's an outpatient treatment center in South Ogden. I sponsor a, a lot of people in 12-step recovery. But I go in there every day and although – Technically, they pay me. <laughs> it's every day when I'm on my way to work, I'm asking myself, how can I help these guys today? It's about trying to help somebody. You know, and I always say, I don't do it to stay sober. I do it because I am sober. I did it because somebody did it for me mm -hmm. that you mentioned earlier because it's what I like to do. It's the right thing to do. And it's... <laughs> It's given me such great purpose in my life. You know, if, if 12 years ago when I was laying in that detox, detox bed at Ogden Regional, if my detox nurse would have said, hey, I got great news for you, buddy. <laughs> 12 years from now, this is what you're going to be doing in your life. I'd ask her to put a pillow over my face <laughs> because I couldn't see that that would be a life that would even be worth living. But I have purpose in my life in a way that I never did before and I have these relationships and people in my life that I never had. So I can tell you right now, we've been doing this for three years, Jim, and this has been one of my most favorite interviews. Uh, I think you're amazing. I think you're inspirational. I think you're authentic. I think you're exciting. I don't know how many more adjectives I can come up with, but uh, I mean, yeah. amazing. 
You're also working with a mutual friend of ours, Scotty Hoffman. <laughs> I love Scotty. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Keystone. He's my buddy. Um, about five years ago, um, a couple of people got together, and there wasn't a sober living facility for men in Ogden at the time. The one that had been there had closed down. And we just kind of were brainstorming, is this something maybe we could do? And we decided we wanted to give it a try. And I said, well, if you're going to try to pull something off like that, you better call Scott Hoffman. <laughs> and so Scotty showed up and um, helped us get this thing. And and uh, we acquired a building and uh, very generous donations from people to help us take this old 1947 building and turn it into a, a sober living home for 14 gentlemen. And so what it is is for people that are coming out of treatment centers or correction system, uh, even off the street, whatever, people that, you know, you, you can go to treatment and you can do real well in treatment, but a lot of people go back to really tough environments that brought them there in the first place. So we try to give them, it's a transition place for Some distance, them, a safe place um, there's meetings that are brought in there. Um, there's some so, accountability, I'm sure. Right. There's a structure to it, and they're around other people in in uh, recovery to help them kind of, you know, get their um, lives back together. And um, a lot of times, you know, they don't – people don't have jobs. They don't have financial resources. So we help them out that way, uh, get them back on their feet so they can get back out in the real world and ha- live successful, sober lives. I love that. Dr. Matt, any thoughts on today's podcast? Oh, a lot. I guess, you know, our show's Project Recovery. And I think, Jim, you've done a wonderful job illustrating the difference between a life where a person is sober for a period of time versus a life where a person's in recovery. And one of the main differences is your focus. In both cases, you may not be using but think about, you know, what Jim was talking about, uh, shifting addictions to something positive like work. But it was just this effort to keep going. You were enjoying a sober life, but you weren't really in recovery yet. He yeah, said he was outrunning. He's trying to outrun, outrun it. I think I love the, the analogy, the visual of the serial killer. Jason's coming out, <laughs> following. He's always right there. No matter how fast you run, he's right behind you. Versus what Jim's describing about his life right now. This is a life in recovery where you, you use the magic words. I have purpose. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing good for other people. I'm doing the right thing. You know, you, you get up in the morning and you feel like you have, you have something to give. The, the self-esteem is there because if you feel like I have something to give, well, that that's confidence that you know you have value and worth. And to me, that's that's why just sobriety by itself versus a life in recovery are, are like night and day. And so I sincerely appreciate you, Jim, taking your time to drive down here and and, and share your story with people, because I know if I'm seeing that, then that's going to benefit so many people who listen to the show. Well, you're welcome. And, and thank you. Um, I want you to know how much I appreciate the opportunity to try to give something back. Well, I think you did, and uh, we applaud your efforts for stopping by and sharing your podcast. If I can leave you with one piece of advice, stay away from Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> I, I drive through it on, on the way to California. I make sure I get gas before I go in the There you go. So there you don't you even go. have to stop. Don't even stop. Hey, we also like to thank our sponsor, knowyourscript.org. Uh, go check them out. Without them, we couldn't do this podcast weekly. Thank you for stopping by and listening to Project Recovery. And don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL what? Podcast.
The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless, and I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.